I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Every January, the great, good and prominent head to the Swiss mountain resort, which was the backdrop to Thomas Mann's great novel of the early 20th century, The Magic Mountain. Then the Alpine town was a sanatorium retreat for Hans Kastorp, the ailing protagonist. Now global ills are on the minds of attendees, prime ministers, presidents, economists, activists, and these days a heavy sprinkling of celebrity A-listers. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the World Economic Forum's annual shebang. Looking around in this plenary hall, I'm proud of the community which we have created here over the years. That's Klaus Schwab. He founded the Forum, as it's known, in 1971 as a precocious young academic. Now 81, he remains its chairman. Over the years, it's drawn statesmen from Henry Kissinger to Nelson Mandela at decisive moments. That South Africa should succeed in reconciling our people and that we should lay the scourge of racism at rest. And celebrities from Leonardo DiCaprio to Angelina Jolie. I find myself very nervous to be here and kind of a fish out of water, but I'm um, I'm finding a lot of good people and a lot of uh, a lot of good solutions. So, how did an ambitious pet project become the ultimate plutocratic destination? And as criticisms have grown of a Davos class, dangerously disconnected from the views of unhappy voters and vociferous critics of global capitalism, what does all the talking achieve? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and I'm at the World Economic Forum to ask, does the world need Davos? The American dream is back, bigger, better and stronger than ever before. This year's conference didn't lack headline acts. Having skipped the event last year, President Trump returned with a flourish and a challenge to the liberal consensus. His speech touted the success of America first. As back in Washington, D.C., the Senate impeachment trial began. America's newfound prosperity is undeniable, unprecedented and unmatched anywhere in the world. Like many political leaders, Trump was using Davos as a platform to make grand promises and some grand gestures. Today I'm pleased to announce the United States will join One Trillion Trees initiative being launched here at the World Economic Forum. One Trillion Trees. But he had an ideological dueling partner, the teenage climate campaigner Greta Thunberg, speaking on the same day, and she was unimpressed. Planting trees is good, of course, but it's nowhere near enough. Our house is still on fire. 
To find out if Davos man or woman is a blessing for the planet or just an irritation for those who aren't invited or wouldn't want to come anyway, I'm joined by The Economist's editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton-Beddows, and our business affairs editor, Patrick Fowles. Hello, both of you. Zanny. Hello, Anne. Patrick. Hello, Anne. Both of you are Davos veterans. How many times have you both been coming and what was on the agenda when you first set foot here? I've been coming for too long, more than 10 years. But I first came at the height of the financial crisis. So there was actually a real sense of panic about where the world economy was heading. It was quite a scary moment then, uh, 2008, 2009. And the people here thought the world that they knew was crashing around them. Patrick, and, and you, I've seen you around for a couple of years at least. Well, this is my f- my fifth uh, year of being immersed in the global elite. And uh, when I first came here, I think there was a mood of complacency. That crisis had passed uh, and people felt that there was only uh, a minor ad- adjustment needed to the system of capitalism and, and politics. It's become clear that much bigger changes are now underway. Well, let's dive into those. And Zani, what subjects are topping the agenda this year? Stakeholder capitalism is one of those very sort of devilsy kind of buzzwords. And it was the original mission uh, of Klaus Schwab when he founded the World Economic Forum. How does that manifest now in 2020? There are two rules about Davos, Anne. One is that whatever is the official theme is so platitudinous that it could cover anything. This year, I think it is stakeholders for an inclusive and sustainable world. <laughs> snappy. <laughs> Just put the opposite of all of those and say who would be in favour of that. So yes, snappy and completely platitudinous. The second is that whatever the prevailing mood of Davos is in terms of where the world is going, it's almost always the opposite. What do you think about the, the mood this year, Patrick? You, you said that it felt like something different was bubbling up to what you discussed five years ago, even. So could you put your finger on what, what are the, the points that are really exercising Davos man and woman? Well, I think you could, you could sort of put it in three buckets and it's the kind of the orthodoxy being challenged a bit more. So one is, is shareholder value being the purpose of companies. That's, that's People are now thinking about a broader group of stakeholders, if you believe what they say. Secondly, the practice of free trade, I think, is... Kind Coming under pressure, more government seeking to intervene in the trading system. And then the last thing that I think is changing a bit is the idea that the government should have a very limited role uh, in the economy. And I think there is a bit more of a sense that government should be making strategic investments and trying to, to alter how things work. Now, climate is the uniting theme that crosses all three of those buckets. I think that's absolutely right. And I think one of the, it's not an official theme, but one of the underlying themes here is what you might call the new dirigisme. There is a sense that government needs to play a bigger role in the economy, with climate as the unifying theme of that. And the other is that it's very clear that the US is determined that it has changed the rules of the global trading system. Donald Trump came here, gave his big speech, and said he had created a trade model for the 21st century with his trade deal with China and his trade deal with Mexico. And I think there is a general view that managed trade with you know, targets and a lot more intervention is where the global trading system is going. And I think that one of the things that we're going to see is other countries saying, well, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, and they're going to have the same kind of approach. So for those of us who believe in free trade and the global trading system, that is an undercurrent here that I find very worrying. 
Patrick, do you agree with that? This was a, a funny thing about, for me, I should say, I've been, been coming probably about five five years or so, maybe six years to here. And it's a funny mix, isn't it? It has a sort of free market underpinning, but then a lot of the sessions and a lot of the things that perhaps make the news are, are kind of challenges to liberal free trade in some way. And it can sometimes feel uneasily poised. I think that's right. And you have to remember that individual companies often quite like cozying up to governments and, and doing what they want and, and fitting in with their plans. So there is that tension there. Uh, and I think uh, lots of business people here quite like to be aligned, at least in public, with the stated objectives of the politicians they uh, have to work with. You're smiling when you say in public. You wouldn't be suggesting that they then go away and don't follow it up. Well, my, my grand theory of Davos is there are several frequencies. So there's the business people talking to the business people, which is pretty pragmatic, often quite ruthless. There's the business people talking to the politicians, which is about flattery. And then there's everyone trying to project to the public, uh, which is about trying to look pious. Flim flam. Uh, often, yeah. Talking of who everyone is talking to here, Zani, schedules notoriously packed, not just panels, but also encounters, parties, dinners. Who have you been hanging out with who's made some sort of impact on you this particular year? Oh, and everybody here makes a huge impact, of course. Uh, <laughs> oh, that speaks Davos woman. <laughs> no, I, I have met lots of interesting people. I, I mean, I think quite seriously, one of the most useful functions of this place, and it saves, I would imagine, a huge number of air miles around the world, is that you've got a lot of people who want to talk to each other in one place that they can actually walk and talk to each other. They don't have to get on aeroplanes. And it sounds really silly. And if you're, you know, outside of Davos and listening to this from the real world, of course, it seems crazy that this is a sort of incredible kind of, you know, a meetup. But it basically, I think this is one of the most useful functions, that it's a sort of global meetup for a whole load of people who would be, you know, burning carbon like crazy going across on aeroplane rides around the world to see each other otherwise. So I've done quite a lot of that. But actually, I had, and this is something that may surprise you, given my kind of cynicism about uh, Davos panels, I actually moderated a really interesting conversation this week uh, between uh, Reng Shenfei, who is the founder and chairman of Huawei, you know, the big Chinese tech company that is blacklisted by the US, and Professor Yuval Harari, um, you know, the man who wrote Sapiens and um, Homo Deus and, you know, kind of global thinker and general doomster about the impact of technology. And I had wondered what this was going to be like. You know, um, Mr. Ren spoke in Chinese with a translator, and I just thought, oh, my goodness, this is going to be one of those Davos conversations. How am I going to get something interesting? And actually, they had a really interesting conversation. They're both, one is a professional historian. One, uh, Mr. Ren, is a very um, kind of interested amateur historian. He's obsessed with history. I think probably Clausewitz was someone, he was one of his <laughs> icons. I don't know that. but And he really engaged with it, and he was, of course... He, he, he painted a very, very... Well, first of all, Professor Harari painted a picture of technology. We were all going to become essentially cyborgs. It's going to be the end of democracy. It could be the end of you know, market economics as we have the combination of biotech and AI essentially implanting into our brain and our humanity goes. So it was a very, very gloomy uh, picture wow. of the future. <laughs> Mr. Wren... Um, you know, you could say it was Pollyanna-ish, but he was, you know, I said to him, you, you know, you, you, you live in a country where it has, um, you know, perfected the art of surveillance dictatorship. And, and he didn't rise to that. But he then said, no, no, artificial intelligence is like the atom bomb. 
And, and you suddenly <laughs> saw the kind of temperature rise in the room. And he said, you know, the nuclear, nuclear bomb, we've learned how to live with that. And we have all the benefits of atomic energy. Well, that, that could be described as looking on the bright side. Um, Patrick, the Davos duel, as it was described in the local paper, was, of course, Donald Trump and Greta Thunberg. What feeling did, did you have about that being at the, the heart of the, the contrast of, of Davos? And did anything stand out from you about that encounter? Well, of course, Donald Trump was largely appealing to a domestic audience, the impeachment process gathering steam. Um, and, and, and he was here really to, 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 to crow about the American economy, which uh, is doing well. And I think that is one of the big uh, uh, impressions one, one gets from companies is, you know, the areas of dynamism in the world, of course, Asia, but also the U.S., uh, economy, which is still doing well. Uh, and actually, uh, uh, he, he mentioned uh, Greta, but Greta here talking about one of the other big subjects, which is is climate, and how the world of business and investing is actually beginning to, to think more seriously about how to deal with it. I'm not so sure about who really won that face off. For, for this reason, I'd be interested what you, you both think. Donald Trump came and sort of swept climate a bit to the side, as he tends to do. But he did have a point, did he not, when he, he talked about this sort of, you, it's very hard to sort of sell gloom and, and end of days and apocalyptic climate arguments. And there is a little bit, I think, of a, of a divide around the place between those who warm to that kind of Greta message and those who think, yikes, you know, we are supposed to be the progressive, small L, liberal, sort of globalists who feel that we can get stuff done. Danny. I agree with that. And I actually think it's a little um, unfair to say that he was essentially dissing the entirety of the climate agenda. He didn't actually mention the word climate. He did rail against prophets of doom, um, by which, of course, everyone knew what he meant. But he then went on to, you know, wax lyrical about the power of progress and the power of humanity to deal with problems. He went on about, you know, he's a real estate man, right? He went on about Notre Dame and, and the Dome in Florence and how amazing it is when people come together and humanity can, can do extraordinary things. And he then said somewhat elliptically something along the lines of, we've got some, some amazing things coming. And, and I wasn't quite sure what he meant, but I'm, I wonder whether, and maybe this is a, a sort of fantasy, but I wonder whether there are elements of the dealing with climate agenda that if we if there is a Trump second term and we'll leave that park that but if there is that's for another that show he might <laughs> that they might go for the whole idea of geoengineering the whole idea of massive projects to you know deal with this that seemed to be part of his thing. He was all in favour of doing stuff and growth. And, and Patrick, as you go around talking to captains of, of industry and some of the big business and finance figures in the world, do you think that they are paying lip service on the, the, the climate argument to an extent? I mean, you can't really run a big company now of, of, of any sort of probity and, and not be asked about it and have to have a line to take. Which side do you think they, they veered towards in that standoff that we well, heard? Well, I, I think it's definitely right to question their sincerity a bit. I think the typical CEOs uh, and actually investor is grappling with a couple of different things. I mean, one is the effort of reducing carbon emissions from existing business. And that really is a bit of a gloomy story. It's uh, getting rid of, of, of old kinds of industry. And that, that's obviously not great for business. But there is this totally different strand, which is entrepreneurial and about growth. And that's coming up with new technologies, investing heavily in renewables. And that's actually a subject that a lot of people find quite exciting and kind of almost capitalist. This anniversary year for the World Economic Forum, does it feel different? A bit like Davos is trying to justify its existence, Annie? 
Well, I think it's making a big deal of its anniversary and its founder, Klaus Schwab, is 81 years old. And of course, he's going to, you know, m- you know mark this, this anniversary. Um, so I'm not surprised that they're making a big deal of it. I think the interesting tension is that they really want to focus on being this forum for solving the world's problems. But in many ways, outside of Davos, I think it is seen as somewhat dated, very much associated with an era that is now viewed with a lot of skepticism, the era of globalization. You know, Davos man or Davos woman is frankly, you know, it, it's a it's a slur in much of the world. And, you know, it's it's therefore a bit of a marketing challenge for Davos, actually, because you want to celebrate all the things that Davos has done, but you've got a little bit of an image problem outside this place. So, yeah, Patrick, how would you describe the, the event or its purpose or its impact? It serves several functions, but, you know, it's a place for people to meet. As as Annie said, you can stumble across the ice and, uh, you know, bounce into your biggest investor or a politician who's... Literally on occasions. Yeah, Um, and then I think there's there's a, a, you know, another purpose is, is... coming up with uh, a kind of consensus about important um, policy questions like climate, for example. And then the third thing I think is a kind of external facing PR effort to project big business uh, in a better light. There are plenty of serious people here talking about serious things. I chaired a panel on the future of education with the Prime Minister of Estonia and the CEO of YouTube, Susan Wojcicki. And one of the things that we've learned is that video is a great medium for learning. We've traditionally become accustomed to going to a class and learning. You know, it's, of course, also a great medium. But video enables you to replay it as many times as you want. So if you didn't understand anything you can see it again, again, and again, and not feel bad about it, um, which is, is a really important thing, that there's no sense of, of um, somebody judging you. A lot of people feel that Davos offers a powerful opportunity to promote their causes. It's glamour, but with a mission. Among the famous faces here this year, I spoke to Priyanka Chopra Jonas, the actress and ambassador for the volunteer network Global Citizen, advocating for the Global Sustainable Development Goals. You know, people are sceptical of what happens in Davos, which is why I think people need to step up. The people who come to Davos need to step up and actually prove everyone else wrong. When we read in the newspapers or on the news about the violence happening in the world, if we as privileged society and privileged people don't care about it, no one else is going to stop it. Do you think the privilege of, of Davos puts people off? I mean, it's a very difficult line to walk, isn't it? Because if it was all spinach... <laughs> whole grain sessions of which I've probably be, you know, chaired quite a few this week and I, I, it looks like you're working pretty hard as you're, uh, just despite the glamorous reputation you're sitting backstage in the middle of the set being built down I don't think you've eaten for about six hours and yet there is that sense that perhaps it's a bit gone a bit glitzy and that there is a sort of borrowed glamour to Davos. Did you give that a bit of thought before you came? That's why I came here with Global Citizen. It's more important to be able to um, really talk to these movers and shakers, people who are leaders in technology, in philanthropy, in in governance, for those people to listen to us and to understand the urgency of the matter. So when it comes to the glamour of it, I don't think I've seen it. I'm a first-time WEF attendee. And for me, um, it has been a lot of work, but it's work that I'm not afraid of and it's work that I think is extremely important. Anything that's surprised you about... It's quite an odd experience, isn't it? You have to come quite a way up a a, a mountain. Footwear's always wrong, right, whatever you do. Well, I did bring snowshoes and I also brought my stilettos. I was prepared for both but I think the one thing that really surprised me was how chaotic it is it's really chaotic for Natalia Vodianova a Russian supermodel turned campaigner on period poverty and philanthropist Davos is a kind of marketplace of non-profit causes with some seriously wealthy buyers she wants to reach 
you have all these people in the same place just uh, to be able to brainstorm and and see faces of uh, of these powerful people when I'm telling them about my projects or my ideas to see their feedback and to hear their feedback is priceless. So who have you bumped into on your rounds in Davos so far? Let it get, clue us in a bit of who you've been hanging out with. Wow, so many different people from Tony Blair to uh, David Miliband, Anne Finnegan with Bank of America and uh, Dina Powell with uh, Goldman Sachs. Ivanka Trump around? I haven't seen her, no. I assume she's around. <laughs> and the truth is, in the end, Davos is not just some kind of concept. It's people. And people meeting people make things happen. That's how we build bridges between the countries. That's how we recreate dialogue. That's how I'm representing Russia, whether I want it or not. Very fundamental question. Snow boots or stilettos? <laughs> Very good question. Definitely stilettos for me. Um, actually, stilettos could dig in and uh, and uh, you know grip you into the into the ice and snow. And actually, I feel much safer. It works for you. We can get you up the magic mountain in your stilettos, Natalia. Thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> thank you, Anne. So, Zani, how much impact do you think this kind of star power has had on the development of? of Davos and it does get more and more glam as the years go by, doesn't it? Well, look, star power sells brands, star power boosts causes. And the irony for me is that the people at Davos who, you know, are widely considered the global elite themselves are easily starstruck. <laughs> and so the, they're kind of rushing around when there's a genuine star. And I remember very well when Donald Trump came for the first time two years ago, all these, you know, leaders of global business were out hanging over the stairs, desperate to get a picture of him. I mean, it was extraordinary. So, you know, yes, there are stars here selling products, boosting causes, no bad thing. But everybody here is equally vulnerable to being starstruck themselves. Ivanka Trump was out and about last night, Patrick, and that was uh, I'm thinking, as if you'd been sitting having cocktails. With her. But it was quite interesting to watching people, some people gravitating towards extremely well-known figure but others think whoa I'm not going over there so it's kind of like one of those calibrations about where you go and where you don't go sometimes isn't it well she walked through the conference center at one point and and my colleague um was telling me that the crowd parted as as she she strode through the conference room seizing the global agenda supposedly I had never seen such alarm flit across <laughs> the face of a lot of centre-left politicians in a fairly small space as they wondered well, you know, what, what was the right degree of polite to be, Zanny. And the thing to remember about this place is however full of important people this is, or people who think they're important, it's basically like a teenage party. And it's a teenage party because there are cool people. And it's a teenage party because you always think that the cool people are somewhere where you are not. <laughs> so it is a place riven with insecurity. And even however rich you are, whatever CEO company you run, however important you are, you're always sufficiently insecure that there is someone more There's important and famous than party. you. always a better party, yeah. Absolutely. In, in the business world, you know, you're... you're I always think you've gone to sort of some of the grown-up things. So what's the equivalent? You know, what is the equivalent of getting that bit of glitz and glamour that Priyanka Chopra and Jonas says or, uh, for, for, you, for your people? I'm afraid to say these these captains of, of industry are not immune from the same teenage sensations and, are, and will be there at all the parties staring at the celebs too. And, and what about those who come to do what you could call geopolitical deal-making or at least the beginnings of it? Carrie Lam was here, obviously, with a situation 
situation in, in Hong Kong really burning it as, uh, as she goes back there. Do you get any sense that when the heads of state or political leaders are here, they're able to make progress because they're not so much in the spotlight and they can perhaps talk to people they can't be seen to be talking to at home? Yeah, I think there's a bit of that. And I think to to sort of counter the the, you know, the the giggling we've been doing about the silliness of Davos, it is it is useful, I think, to have a place that is sufficiently far away from everywhere that you can't easily nip off, uh, where you've got a lot of these people together. And you can have political deal struck, you know, Middle East uh, leaders talking to each other. You can have, you know, backroom diplomacy done. I think there's quite a lot of conversations going on between the Americans and the Europeans about how they're going to solve their various trade issues right here this year. And that's surely useful. Do you and think I th- that's true, Patrick? I think that's right. And, and, and actually, if you look back in history, there have been other things. I mean, in 2009, I think there was a big climate initiative that was essentially born here. And there were other big symbolic moments. I mean, Nelson Mandela addressing Davos uh, after he was released, but before he was elected was, was one of those sort of pivotal moments. So it does have a role in geopolitics, I think. And actually, in, in practical terms, if one in fairness to the World Economic Forum itself, it would say that things like uh, the Gavi, the Global Vaccination Alliance, that it is strongly promoted is something that is, you know, this is something that it clearly is of, of great benefit. And there's an argument really about how much the World Economic Forum should be proposing and pushing ideas, or how much it should be reflecting the ideas of others. Well, I think it's probably better as a convener than it is as a as an organisation that comes up and pushes its own ideas. Um, it, you know, if you if you want to be negative about it, you can say that it sort of purloins other people's ideas and and you know mushes them into you know a consensus. But actually, I, I'm I think that the role of being a really good convener and a place that pulls different groups together where people want to go because everybody else is there is actually a really important role. And if it didn't exist, I think we would be wishing something like this existed. So its problem now is its brand. Um, So it's got to have a little bit of a rebranding exercise. But actually, you know, I'm one of the people that thinks Davos is probably a useful thing. Let's get an external perspective then. Christina Garston is Professor of Social Anthropology at the University of Stockholm and the author with Adrienne Sorbom of Discrete Power, How the World Economic Forum Shapes Market Agendas. Professors Garston and Sorbom have come up with the name for the exclusive but agenda-setting power of the World Economic Forum, discretionary governance. But is it a force for good? How effective is it? Or might it be a threat to democratic systems? Discretionary governance can be very effective. I mean, you can move faster than through the established democratic procedures. So in that sense, we may need a portion of discretionary governance for for discussions to, to move on and, and not to be stalled as in some established international institutions. Discretionary governance may be dangerous or potentially so if there is no way that the public can get information about uh, how the mechanisms of agenda setting uh, do work. Uh, And so it can also cut a large portion of the public uh, off from the actual discussions and hence create a critical voice that may be counterproductive to the very aims of the World Economic Forum. It all comes back to the inescapable question in many people's minds here, amid the snow and security guards. Does the world need Davos? 
Yes, I think the world needs Davos and similar kinds of meeting places. Uh, it's very positive that many people, many top leaders are interested uh, in meeting, discussing, to find alternative ways or at least some kinds of ways to, to move forward in these discussions and to actually take decisions that are favorable to the world at large long term. But... I think that uh, we should be very careful not to move in the direction of these being the only way forward. So they can be a motor, they can be a lever for vital, urgent discussions, but we cannot leave the destiny of the world to these kinds of meetings solely. Patrick, do you agree with Professor Garston? Is Davos in some sense dangerous? I mean, there is an unattractive element to it in the sense that some people are kept out, and that's the flip side of that uh, exclusivity. Um, but to say it's dangerous, I think, confuses uh, its, its nature. It's not really an organisation or a, a kind of company or a government. I mean, it's really just a place where people gather. And the key thing to remember is often the themes and subjects that people agree on here are completely wrong. One is reminded constantly of the fallibility of all of these uh, what uh, they got wrong? peacocking CEOs. Well, remember last year, um, you know, the big theme was the global economy was in terrible shape and everyone was really pessimistic. In fact, you know, things have turned out well and, and the, the outlook now is relatively upbeat. Similarly, you know, uh, Davos uh, was was a place where emerging markets were going to be the future. And actually, over the last few years, it's been a, a, a terrible time for them. So you don't think it's so much dangerous or unaccountable. You just did you think it, it sometimes gets stuff wrong. Oh, all the time. And in fact, you know, among investors, there's this famous uh, theme that the Davos consensus is what you should bet against every year. It's reliably wrong. You can even profit from it. So, Zani, assuming that you keep coming, I suppose you'd eventually get your long service award for, for coming for, for so many years. What do you expect the future to hold for the, the World Economic Forum? Well, that's a really good question, because I think the World Economic Forum really is um, an organisation that revolves around one person. Klaus Schwab, who is the founder and is still the ringmaster, the impresario, 81 years old, I'm, you know, I think the question for them as an organization is, have they put in place an organizational structure that will outlast the founder? And will it continue in this way? There are other competitors now. There are other of these kind of conferences going on. But my view is that if Davos didn't exist, there would be things like this, because actually at the core, there are some useful functions done. And so whether it's Davos or whether it's somewhere else, this kind of thing's going to go on. CEO speak here would talk about something called key man risk. Uh, what happens when Klaus Schwab is no longer around? He's an, an octogenarian. It's very much a family affair. His son, his daughter-in-law, his granddaughter all hold key roles in parts of the organisation. It's a bit of a family business, isn't it? That's right. Um, there have been a couple of attempts in the past to, to bring in a powerful number two from, from, from the outside who, who presumably is the, the designated successor. Uh, and in both cases, that hasn't really worked out and they've left um, uh, relatively quickly. So the succession uh, question is partly about could, could they get in a powerful outsider again? Uh, history suggests that's tricky. And then uh, might a family member uh, take over? And of course, I think the optics of that are pretty unattractive, particularly at a time when Davos itself receives a lot of flack about being a kind of global conspiracy. Uh, a hereditary global conspiracy would be even worse, I think. 
And Patrick, do you think the world still needs Davos? I think Davos does something useful. Uh, maybe the, the world needs the individuals at Davos a little bit less than sometimes their big egos think. Sunny, it needs these kind of conversations to happen. I think it's, it's facile to think that we could, we, the world would be better off if you didn't have these kind of things. Getting people to talk to each other is a good thing. And it wouldn't be Davos particularly late in the evening after a couple of, uh, of glasses of wine at altitude if we, we didn't uh, have a bit of a joke about perhaps some of the slightly pompous language and practices at the place where we're lucky enough to, to be at. Have you found any, Patrick? Well, I was thinking about a way to capture f- the, the famous Davos speak. So uh, first of all, take a normal sentence. What's the purpose of Davos? It's a place where powerful people meet to talk about the world's problems. Uh, uh, that's the simple way of articulating it. Now, let's, sw- let's switch to Davos speak. Are you ready? Mm. It's a place where thought leaders are gathered to enable a conversation with the community about the global governance architecture. Clear as mud. Easier to understand. Got it. Got it. Going to put it on the the, T-shirt. I liked a joke that I heard this year because there were so many tiers and layers of passes. You have to be a white badge holder to go uh, everywhere. And then there were all these sort of strange uh, other sort of corporate activity going on. And, And someone said to me, if the end of the world happens while we're at Davos, you do realise that the delegates will eat each other in descending order of the passes. <laughs> I hope the, the, the richest will be the tastiest. I, I'd like to think so. I think the suggestion was that we were going to be toast first. <laughs> There's some fairly tough uh, corporate cookies around, around the place here. Sandy Minton Beddoes, Patrick Fowles, thank you very much for joining me here in this studio. I'll let you get back to the last day of your punishing schedules. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, Anne. And as always, we'd love to know what you think. Stilettos or snow boots? And can the World Economic Forum keep up with the times? Or has the Davos class had its day? And if so, what should replace it? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And tomorrow, we have something new in store for you. Listen out for the first episode of our brand new podcast, Checks and Balance, about the 2020 elections and the road to power in America. Subscribe now to hear the first episode. That's Checks and Balance for the global view on democracy in America. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in Davos, this is The Economist. <laughs>